You shall not murder. Now this might seem like a strange text to preach on today when we're giving thanks for Elizabeth. It's not the kind of thing you probably put on a card for a baby, you know, or put it above a cot. Uh, And it's also an interesting verse to be thinking about on Remembrance Sunday when we remember millions of lives lost in war. But we're actually teaching through a series at the moment on the Ten Commandments. And it just so happens that today we reached the sixth one, which is you shall not murder. And as I've studied it and thought about it this week, I've concluded that actually this is the perfect time to think about this commandment. Because nothing could illustrate the sacredness of human life more than a baby. And nothing could illustrate the sacredness of human life more horrifically than war. We're looking at the right text today. You shall not murder. In the English, it's just four words. In the original Hebrew language, it was just two words. Very short. How much can be said about it? On the face of it, we could be in for a very brief sermon. Don't kill people. Let's pray. But you will be relieved to hear that I've found enough material to preach for at least half an hour. I want to ask three questions of this text, and these are the three main points of the sermon. The first one is, what does this mean? The second is, have you murdered anyone recently? And the third is, how can we live a life like this? What does it mean? What does it mean by murder? This is not the most common word that's used in the Bible, in the Old Testament, for killing. It's not, for example, used for killing in wartime. It's only used about the killing of persons, humans, never of animals. So it does not forbid the taking of animal life. The Israelites actually were commanded to sacrifice animals as part of their religious duties. And they were allowed to eat meat, most kinds of meat, as part of their diet. So while the Bible teaches that we should be caring about animals and treat them humanely and be good stewards of creation, it is legitimate to take animal life. So those Christians here who are having chicken for dinner, you can relax. This verb murder is also not used of the kind of killing that's done by the state in a just war. The Israelites, again, were commanded to engage in war during a certain period of their history. And later on, they were allowed to bear arms as a nation if they were attacked by other nations. The Old Testament law also legislated for capital punishment in the event of a capital offence. So the state could take life under certain circumstances that were prescribed by God in a just war or certain crimes. So this commandment does not forbid that. But it is used, this word is used of what we call murder. That is the unlawful, premeditated killing of another human being. And it's also used of manslaughter, which is the unlawful killing of another human being without malice of forethought. A little bit further on, the the same word is also used in Deuteronomy chapter 4 of the killer who kills unintentionally. Negligent manslaughter. In uh, Deuteronomy 4, it says this, Moses selected three cities in the eastern region, Anyone who accidentally killed another without hating him at the time of the accident could flee to one of those cities and be safe. So they're actually cities of refuge for people who negligently killed. 
So what is this sixth commandment getting at? It is forbidding permanently all unauthorized taking of human life by private individuals or groups, either deliberately or by negligence. But every negative command in the Bible has a positive sort of flip side. And the flip side of you shall not murder is you shall cherish life, protect it, guard it. It's a natural implication. And so to keep this commandment properly, we have to think about how to guard life and cherish life as well as abstain from taking it. And God's people should be careful to observe it. I want to think through a few implications with you today. And I'm conscious we have a mixture here. We've got some people here who are committed Christians, some who are uh, inquirers interested in the, God, in the Christian faith, others may be atheists. And I just want to speak to you about what this means for the Christian believer. And I'm going to have to touch on a few ethical issues that are rather complex. And I do recognise the complexity. We won't have time to unpack all the details, but I want to get some issues out on the table and state the principle. Human beings are at their most vulnerable at the beginning of life, in the womb. Now, taking this commandment seriously would mean that Christians would avoid methods of contraception that take effect after life has begun. And if you have any doubt about your method of contraception on that basis, then I would say it's probably best to change it. And if you're really not sure, we do have a uh, very excellent uh, GP in the church, Jess Bradshaw, who would be very happy to chat that over with you. As those of you who know me know, I'm not a very good person to advise on contraception uh, with five children, um, one of whom was planned. Uh, that's not in the script. I, I said it earlier. I've got to stick to the script. Another implication of this text is that the life of an unborn baby ought to be protected just as much as a baby who has been born. The legalising of abortion in the Western world has led to situations that are just unbelievable. There have been situations where in one room of a hospital, doctors are fighting to save the life of a very premature baby, 28, 29 weeks. And in another room of the same hospital, other doctors are quietly terminating a baby of the same term. Now that should never have been allowed to happen in our society. According to the biblical value of human life, abortion is not justifiable except on the grounds of certain situations of medical emergency and necessity. Now, of course, much more could be said about this, but not today. The main force of the commandment is that we should not take life except where authorised. Another implication is that we shouldn't take our own life. And I know I'm on sensitive ground here. So let me say this with love. Your life belongs to God. And it is of inestimable value. It is not yours to take. However bad you may feel, however dark the darkness, whatever you may feel about, your life is sacred. It is precious in the sight of God. He made you. You shall not murder yourself. There are other implications. In our society, the moral consensus that was founded on the Bible is gradually eroding. So is the idea that life is precious. Some people are now arguing that the value of human life should be based on its usefulness to society. Peter Singer, who's the professor of bioethics at Princeton University, 
has said that if we compare a severely defective human infant with a non-human animal, a dog or a pig, for example, we will often find that the non-human has superior capacities, both actual and potential, for rationality, self-consciousness, communication, and anything else, in his view, that can plausibly be considered as morally significant. Singer added in a, in a later interview, there's a lack of any clear boundary between a newborn infant who is clearly not a person in any ethically relevant sense and a young child who is. In our book, Should the Baby Live?, my colleague Helga Kruse and I suggested that a period of 28 days after birth might be allowed before an infant is accepted as having the same right to life as others. This is a brilliant professor of bioethics at uh, Princeton University. Now, the biblical command, you shall not murder, forbids those kind of calculations because it is starting from a different place. Every human life, according to the Bible, is sacred because humans were made in the image of God. Therefore, the elderly, the medically dependent, the severely disabled are worthy of ultimate dignity and care and respect and honour because of who they are, not because of what they can offer. Now, I know that many of you here work in the medical professions, and I know that you face ethical decisions very often in your work, and I know that life is really black and white, and that you have to deal with all sorts of shades of grey. And I know we don't have time today to explore all the nuances and all the situations, but make, we need to make the main point. Please don't let the special cases and the hard cases take away from the main force. We should never take human life in an unauthorised way. And remember too that this verb, which we translated murder, is also used in Deuteronomy 4 of the killer who killed his neighbour unintentionally. Now how does this happen? One way this happens in our world is actually through driving. Drink driving and dangerous driving. Cars make potential killers of us all. A number of years ago I was a member of a church in South London. A single man was speeding on the motorway because he was running late. He came over the top of a flyover doing about 60 miles an hour. Too late to see the traffic tailback. And he ploughed into the back of an estate car. It contained a family. They were members of our church. The wife and the baby were killed in the fire that broke out. And the husband terribly burned trying to open the door to get them out. He died a few days later in hospital from terrible burns. A single man speeding because he wanted to get somewhere fast. Now, if you drive differently when you see a police car on the road, don't you think you ought to drive that way all the time? When the eye of the Lord God is on you, the one who gave life. And of course, people always say, I never meant to do it. But they did not take adequate precautions against it. Negligence. You shall not murder. Scripture expressly forbids taking life in an unauthorised way, and by implication, it requires us to do our utmost to protect life. Now, why? Why does the Bible make such a big deal about human beings? Why does it place such a lot of worth on our lives? It was certainly not something that came from the cultures who were around the people of the Bible. When the Israelites heard this command from God, 
it was actually completely radical. Because nobody else in the ancient world thought like this. One of the most famous law codes that's been discovered from the ancient world from about 300 years or so before this was written, the Bible was written down here, is from ancient Babylon. And it's called the Code of Hammurabi. Now the interesting thing about these laws is the the attention they place on social class. Here's what the Code of Hammurabi says. If a high-class man strikes a woman of his class and therefore causes her to miscarry her fetus, he shall weigh and deliver ten shekels of silver for the fetus. And if the woman should die, they will kill his daughter. That's what happened with the uh, upper-class citizens. If he should cause a woman of the common class to miscarry her fetus, he should weigh and deliver five shekels of silver. And if the woman should die, he should weigh and deliver 30 shekels of silver. And if he strikes a slave woman and thereby causes her to miscarry, he should weigh and deliver two shekels. And if that slave woman should die, well, he can get away with 20 shekels of silver. You notice how it differs? You've got the high class, the commoners, and the slave class. And most of it is resolved through money. Not in the Bible. The value of a human life is determined not based on social class, not based on any kind of distinction that we have in society, but on the fact that we were made in the image of God. That's what it said in that reading in Genesis chapter 9. For man was made in the image of God. God bases the value of human life on the fact that we are made in his image. Now what does that mean? Animals are creatures, but human beings are something more. Yes, we're created, but we're persons. We're made to reflect God in the world. We're given rationality and a spiritual side, a soul, a spiritual life that is eternal. We're made to mirror God to the world, to rule it and fill it and care for it. We don't get the measure of our worth from each other. We don't get get the measure of our worth from the natural world. We get it from God. He gives life to us and he takes it away. It is not ours. So every human life is sacred. Regardless of ability, regardless of function, regardless of a supposed quality of life, regardless of health or IQ or age or gender or ethnic group, regardless of whether you're born or unborn, it is sacred. You shall not murder. So let's move to the second question. Have you murdered anyone recently? Now you may be thinking, I'm actually quite pleased to find one of the Ten Commandments that I've actually kept. I haven't actually murdered anyone. But we need to go deeper. We really do need to go deeper because Jesus opens up this commandment in a very radical way. And he shows us that there's a flip side, a positive side to cherishing, to, to, to not murdering, which is to cherish life. If you want to turn with me to page 977, this is what Jesus said when he unpacked this commandment. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Notice how Jesus unpacks the sixth commandment. He says, okay, let's take this to its logical conclusion. Let's see where murder actually begins. And where does murder begin? In the heart. And it begins with anger. And anger quickly boils over into language. Why does Jesus make such a big deal about the word fool? The only person I can think of who used the word fool as an insult was Mr. T in the 18. Remember him? 88 gold chains, one for every generation of his family kept in slavery. Mohican. Shut up, fool. My mama didn't raise no dummy. He always used to drink a glass of milk. Fool. It's kind of comedy insult. Why is Jesus so concerned about this? You, know, you say, you fool. Here's why. Because when we use words to belittle people, we reduce them and make them less than the image of God. We use our words to cut them down to size and we then can think of them as less than they really are, as less great and noble as they really are. If you can give someone a label, it's easier to dehumanise them. If you call someone a chav, you have diminished their dignity as an image bearer. It is death by vocabulary. Of course, these words come up in every generation. When I was a child, in the 70s, I used to call people spastics. Now, you wouldn't get away with that now, but you would get away with chav. Ten years' time, no one will be saying it. Death by vocabulary. And that is actually what precedes murder. Every totalitarian regime that has ever committed genocide has its own special vocabulary to justify the channels of murder and clear the way. So when you are angry, what kind of words do you use? And what about the people we're angry with? If we let it... This churning, boiling anger will cool into bitterness and hate and enmity. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 23. He says, you know, it's a sort of funny thing. He kind of goes on and says, yeah, if you're offering your gift and you remember somebody's got something against you, go and sort it out. He's saying, deal with it. Don't let problems and tension and conflict go on. Deal with it there and there. That's actually a working out of obedience to this commandment. Because if we fail to deal with our anger and our words, we fall into a settled pattern of hatred and resentment, which is a murderous attitude. So let me ask you again, have you murdered anyone recently? Is this hitting home yet? It should be, because you know what? We are all murderers. I realised as I was preparing this sermon that I have basically become uh, indulgent about road rage. If I feel that someone is, I don't know what the British word is, lives in America for years, they call it tailgating. Someone's driving right up your backside, you know? Especially a big truck. I hate that when they try and intimidate you. 
or somebody's just rude on the road or cuts you up, it boils over into rage and I speak words like fool. Although not usually the word fool. I was talking about this commandment with a friend this week and he said, have you heard of trolley rage? (laughs) Now, I haven't heard of trolley rage before, but I tell you what, I knew what he was talking about. You're in the supermarket, you've got your trolley, somebody's there and they just just don't observe the rules of the road. (laughs) They swing in front of you or they bash you. you Have you ever had someone take something out of your trolley? It's, it's, It's... my wife said Asda in Stockport is particularly bad for this people are so grumpy about the trolleys one man confessed that he saw another dad disciplining his child at a playgroup and he entertained a two minute fantasy of cutting the man's throat I know what he means do you? C.S. Lewis wrote, It is hardly possible for us to think too often or too deeply about our neighbour's glory. The load or weight or burden of my neighbour's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, they will pass. Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals who we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal beings, human beings made in the image of God to live forever. Do we feel the weight of our neighbor's glory? You see, properly understood, this sixth commandment is a charter for a whole new way of life. It's a way of life in which we treat everybody, without exception, as a glorious being, a VIP, royalty, made in the image of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. How dare we treat them badly? The mentally ill, the person on the autistic spectrum, which is more and more people I I meet, The person with a disability, the addict, the thief, the asylum seeker, the beggar, the repeat offender, the arrogant rich, the idle poor, the person who's just really rude in the queue. You shall not murder. If we understand this, it will transform everything. From the way we drive to the way we respond to people who are rude, it will make you a different person on the bus. It will make you a different person in the queue. In the restaurant, the way you talk to a waiter, the way you talk to a dustbin man, make you a different person at the post office. Now, one of the classic treatments of these Ten Commandments was published in 1692 by a man called Thomas Watson. Watson says, how many ways is murder committed? And he answers, 12 ways. Here are a few of them. We murder with the hand, obviously, We murder with the mind. We think murderous thoughts. Malice is mental murder. We murder with the tongue when we speak prejudice, racism, hateful speech. We murder with the pen or maybe the email. 
But what about this? This one really got me. We murder by unmercifulness, by failure to show mercy, by not helping someone who is ready to perish. You may be the death of another person by not relieving him. If you don't feed the man who is starving, you kill him. How many are thus guilty of the breach of this commandment? How many of our lives are given over radically in the service of our fellow image bearers so that we will do anything to help them? And he concludes that this commandment implies that we should be so far from ruining other people that we should do all we can to preserve their life. Have you murdered anyone recently? Now, I'm sensing the weight of this commandment, even as I sense the weight of my neighbor's glory and the way that I excuse myself by saying I was tired, I was a bit grumpy, I've got a short fuse, it's my temperament, they wound me up. It's always their fault, isn't it? And I realise that I've fallen very, very far short of keeping this commandment fully. So that leads me to the final question. How can we live a life like this? Where we keep the commandment, where we, we never take life, but we cherish life. And I think it's important to ask that because you may be feeling it's all a bit much. Uh, it's impossible. But I hope also that you're seeing, actually catching a glimpse of a different kind of life. A beautiful life where people are treated with great dignity and value all the time. Everyone. In a word, it's a life of love. That's what this commandment is holding up. A free life. A life where everyone is, is, is treated great. But maybe at the same time thinking, I, I just can't do this. Well, let me tell you. The only way to keep this commandment is to get what Christianity is all about. Christian message is not do your best. The Christian message is not get religion, go to church, say your prayers. The Christian message is not try and keep some impossible standards. The Christian message is a person. His name is Jesus. And when we focus on this person rather than on our own failings, we start to see some wonderful things. The first one is that Jesus kept the sixth commandment perfectly his entire life. He did so in the most beautiful and the most costly of ways. Not only did Jesus never murder anyone, but he did everything in his power to cherish life. He was on a mission, yet he would turn aside out of compassion for the needy. He was particularly compassionate to those on the outside, the poor, those on the fringes of society. He touched the people no one else would go near. Lepers, the AIDS victims of their time. He ate with people that others shunned. He commanded his followers to let little children be brought to him, even though in that culture, little children had no status. He was there for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the marginalised. He himself was homeless for a time. So the question then is, seeing how great Jesus was, can we live like Jesus did? Can I live like Jesus did, that perfectly, all the time? And the first thing we need to realise is that on our own we can't. We can't do it. Yes, we could do a few acts of charity, put some money in the box, help a nice old lady over the road. 
be kind to animals and small children. But by nature, we won't commit to a life of radical service of others, of forgiving others, of being loving to them and laying down our rights for them. We won't do it by, by nature. You know, we might not have killed someone, but we have got murderous hearts. But realising that at some level we are all murderers is actually the first step towards being free. Because the next step is to realise that the reason we're like we are is that we're basically enemies of God. Now, maybe you're not consciously an enemy of God. You're thinking, what are you talking about? You may think you're a decent person. You may be on the surface. But listen, you don't want God to interfere with your life too much, do you? And when things don't go your way, you get angry with God, even though you haven't given him the time of day for the rest of the year. We rage at God when things don't go our way. We want God's help then. But most of the time, we want God to stay clear. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And it is due for punishment by God. So, back to Jesus. What did he do for people who were God's enemies? He's all powerful. He comes to this earth. He can do anything he wants. What does he do for God's enemies? Here's what he did. He died for them. He died for them. That's what the cross is all about. The cross was a torture instrument that was reserved for the most common and the worst of criminals, including murderers. In fact, on the day that Jesus faced his uh, trial, there was a murderer called Barabbas who was scheduled to die that day. He was on death row. He was a known terrorist and murderer. And the crowd, obeying for Jesus' blood, asked the king to set Barabbas free and Jesus take his place. And that's what happened. Jesus literally took the place of a murderer. He suffered and died on a cross while Barabbas walked free and breathed the clean air. Now, that was one man. But you know what? It is a picture of what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross on a grand scale. Out of love, the Son of God, Jesus, took our punishment and paid our debt. The author of life had his life snuffed out so that we could be given a new life. So the more that you know Jesus... The more that you understand him, the more that you love him, the more that you can grasp the sheer value of other human beings. He died for them. He died for me so I can live a new life. The more you know him, the more you can live a life where others are given the value that they deserve. Because he has done that for you.